0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme.
1: When you've lived abroad for as long as I have, you tend to find echoes of Ireland in the most unusual of places. That was the case last summer when I spent a short holiday in the Dakotas, two huge, sparsely populated Western American states. Even today, they're hard to get to and are often among the last of the 50 US states visited by enthusiastic travellers seeking to see all of America. In the late 19th century, they were remote frontier societies that attracted the ambitious and the adventurous. Theodore Roosevelt, who had a privileged upbringing in New York, fled to the badlands of North Dakota in the 1880s to seek solace on the American frontier following the death, on the same day, of his wife and his mother. When I found myself in the North Dakotan town of Medora, I stayed at the Rough Riders Hotel, where the memory of Roosevelt's two-year spell in the area is richly celebrated. The hotel lobby boasts an extensive library of books related to Roosevelt and his many interests. I opened a volume of his collected works, devoted to literary criticism, and to my amazement hit upon an intriguing essay on Irish sagas, published by Roosevelt in January 1907, while he was President of the United States. It's hard to imagine any serving US president or Irish Taoiseach of recent vintage having the time or the inclination to undertake such an ambitious scholarly venture. Roosevelt did not have any ancestral connection with Ireland and indeed had made his career as a reformer pushing back against Irish-American dominance of New York politics. In his 1907 essay, Roosevelt lauded early Irish poetry which he thought had some unique beauties that were not to be found elsewhere. He drew a politician's conclusion that the Anglo-Norman invasion had had ruinous effects on the growth of national life in Ireland A sentiment with which I am sure many of us would readily concur While he was busy delving into Ireland's antique literature, Roosevelt hosted a distinguished Irish visitor Douglas Hyde, later Ireland's first president, who was on a seven-month tour of America raising money for the Gaelic League He travelled to Washington in the winter of 1906 and met with the President at the White House. During a convivial conversation over a simple lunch washed down with a cup of tea and a glass of sherry, Roosevelt revealed that he had been raised by Irish nursemaids from whom he had first heard the legendary names of Cúchollán and McCool. Hyde was impressed by his host's knowledge of Irish and Norse mythology. The President told Hyde that he planned to write to American universities urging them to appoint Irish language professors so as to capture all that was good in Irish life and make it part of America. Hyde was not the only Irish writer to encounter President Roosevelt during his seven years in high office. During his first visit to America in 1903, W.B. Yeats was invited to the White House to meet the President. The President was already an admirer of the Irish literary revival. Yeats, who would write Approvingly of Constance Markovitch, when as a young woman she rode to Harriers, was warned in Washington not to accept an invitation to go horse-riding with the President, who was a notoriously vigorous horseman. While he was President, Roosevelt had the habit of inviting ambassadors to ride with him at pace through Washington's Rock Creek Park, which must have been a bracing experience. Riding the range in the Dakotas, as Roosevelt had done for two years, would have been a far cry from Yeats's image of the Galway races where delight makes all of the one mind, the riders upon the galloping horses, the crowd that closes in behind. The fact that a famously active American president was willing to make time to meet the two visiting Irish writers highlights the fact that Irish literature was causing quite a stir in those early years of the 20th century. After he left the presidency, Roosevelt retained an attachment to Irish writing, especially to Lady Gregory, whose work he greatly admired. He sided with the Abbey Theatre against its Irish-American critics of the playboy of the Western world when the Abbey toured the play in America in 1911. Roosevelt credited the Abbey with having brought about a revival of the ancient Irish spirit, which is precisely how Yeats and Lady Gregory would have seen it. In Roosevelt's view, the Abbey had succeeded because its plays spring from the soil and evoked the heart of the Irish people. In today's Washington, Roosevelt, who inspired the original teddy bear, is remembered chiefly for his involvement in a mock race against effigies of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln that takes place every time the city's baseball team plays a home game. It is a contest in which, for some reason, the Roosevelt effigy is always an all-saran. Now that would never happen to Cook Cullen or Finn McCool, or to the hard-riding country gentleman of Yeats's imagination.
2: In spring of 1970, we swapped the smog-drenched streets of West London for the wilds of West Kerry. I was the youngest of four boys all under the age of ten. My older brothers disappeared into the fields and onto the beaches of this new and vast playground. We rented a farmhouse while our bungalow neared completion. Our new house sat on a slight hill overlooking the bay, where lights twinkled in the distance when the sun descended. Later that summer we moved in. My mother was apprehensive though because all was not that simple. We had a near neighbour. Well, when I say near, what I really mean is that he lived at the bottom of our garden. Bill was his name and his tiny white house was tucked in behind a cluster of crabapple trees in what the deeds proved to be a separate plot. Bill was a tall, thin, bespectacled man and he wore a long beige trench coat with a beige beret to match. When he first set eyes on the young English tearaways his face turned even greyer. I'm ruined, he declared. I'm completely ruined. My father assured him that we'd keep our distance but Bill remained wary. He ordered a wall to be built around his little house. Within weeks, he was barricaded in by a high white wall with a narrow crevice at its centre. This gap allowed him to slip in and out with ease, yet he seldom did. As that first summer fell into autumn, sightings of Bill were as rare as the sunlight itself. But when the winter loomed, he appeared again like an animal having gained an extra layer of fur. His winter garb consisted of a long black coat that touched his toes and a black beret now that hid the white hairs growing out of his ears. There were only two places Bill could be found. At the nearby Bay Hotel having dinner or wandering the Strand Road to the beach below. He had been a teacher, or at least that's what my father heard, and he'd been sacked by the local parish priest amidst rumours of drink. Then he took off up the country somewhere, disappeared for years. Some said he went to England and fought for king and country, but the truth is nobody seemed to know much about the man. When the weather brightened, he began to appear again, back in beige attire but looking even thinner now. My mother sensed his frailty, and I'm not sure when or how it exactly happened, But my father began bringing him his breakfast, and in the fading evening light, we'd place a dish of bread on his wall, but never went any further. We called out, Bill, before hearing his door open. Soon after, his bony old hands appeared, and like a bird, he carried the bread back into the nest before disappearing inside again. On warm days, he began sitting in a sun trap outside the wall. The heat eases the pains, he'd say. He and my parents chatted more frequently. What they chat about, I'd no idea. But sometimes I heard the word doctor and hospital being mentioned, in whispers, of course. I can still see my father helping this feeble old man into our black Volkswagen Beetle. I can still see the reg plate, J.I.E. 15. Still smell the fumes as it takes off towards the town. I wondered if we'd ever see Bill again. But some hours later there he was, in the passenger seat, as the car pulled up. They wanted to keep him in, but he wouldn't stay in, I heard my father say before he walked the ailing Bill to the wall's crevice, but went no further as usual. The bread was collected untouched from the wall each morning thereafter. The bird was surely facing his final hibernation. Now I'm following my mother through the garden and beyond the crevice of Bill's wall. She slowly turns the handle of his front door. I'm finally going to see what's inside and seconds later through the darkness I see another door. It's a caravan. Bill has a caravan Inside his house. How on earth did he get it in there? The curious child wonders. My mother keeps me back and all I can see is Bill's legs. Bill's lying on the bed. I'm dying, Joe. I'm dying, he cries over and over. Shush now, Bill, she whispers. Shush now. I don't remember an ambulance coming or how he was taken away but days later Bill died in the old Dingle hospital His parting words to my father whatever I have now is yours Sean I'll have no more use for it it was fitting that my father was the man to knock the walls that Bill had built around himself for I doubt Manny got as close to Bill as he did we broke down the gable and pulled the caravan back out into the light It was cleaned and painted and passed on, with the ghost of Bill still inside, no doubt. His little white house still stands at the bottom of the family garden, still known as Bill's house. Bill the man in the beret. Bill like a bird who flitted in and out of his nest for crumbs. Bill who remains as much a mystery to us now as he did then.
1: Are you, ready? Are, you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready?
3: Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the time of your life? It's time to stand up and fight. It's all right. It's all right. And If your New Year resolutions didn't last through February, it could be said you were in good company. On New Year's Eve 1661, a Londoner resolved with a solemn oath in his diary to give up plays and wine. And on February the 17th, he noted drank wine upon necessity, being ill for want of it. The diarist was Samuel Pepys, and the celebrated diary is the basis for much of our knowledge of social and domestic life in these islands in the 17th century. When Pepys died in 1703, he was rich and laden with honours. But when he was born in February 1633, it might have seemed unlikely that the fifth child of a tailor and the daughter of a Whitechapel butcher was destined for great things, although his father's cousin was MP for Sudbury and became Lord Chief Justice of Ireland. But young Samuel was bright, very bright. He attended St Paul's School, and in 1650 he went up to Magdalen College, Cambridge, on not one but two exhibitions, in other words, scholarships and his first civil service post was as Clerk of the Acts to the Navy Board at the not inconsiderable salary of £350 a year, and that was without the probability of profiting from the many gifts, in other words bribes, available to the holder of such an office. In 1649 he was in the crowd at Whitehall to witness the execution of Charles I, and presumably cheered the gruesome sight. Yet ten years on, Now a staunch royalist, he was on board the ship that sailed to the Netherlands to bring home in triumph the restored King Charles II. He was accompanying his boss, General Sir Edward Montague, now newly created Earl of Sandwich, who was responsible for the plum job being offered to the young peeps, already clearly adept at staying one step ahead of the political game. And when he retired in 1689... It was from the lofty position of Chief Secretary to the Admiralty. But we remember him for his diary, which he began on January 1st, 1660, and kept for almost ten years, recording in a mixture of code and shorthand his own career and frequently dishonourable sexual behaviour, as well as details of the great events of the century, including the Great Plague and the Great Fire of London. Of the former he wrote, Lord, how sad a sight it is to see the streets empty of people, jealous of every door that one sees shut up, lest it should be the plague, and about us two shops in every three, if not more, generally shut up. That was August the 16th, 1665, and might well have been written in our own plague year of 2020. Pepys was only 22, when he married Elizabeth de Saint Michelin. She was spirited and only 15, and he led her a merry dance, taking his pleasure in the parlance of his time wherever he might, and afterwards recording his terror of disease. His dalliances even included the young woman employed as Elizabeth's companion as they rose in society. The diary details are as blinkingly graphic as they are entertaining. As are the descriptions of Elizabeth's rage when she caught him out. She died in 1669, a few months after the diary ended, and her husband dutifully and perhaps guiltily commissioned a memorial for St. Olive's Church in Hart Street. Samuel and Elizabeth never had children, and the opening entry in his diary records regret. Blessed be God, I was in very good health without any sense of my old pain. My wife, after the absence of her terms for seven weeks, gave me hopes of her being with child. But on the last day of the year, she had them again. The pain referred to a bladder stone, which had been surgically removed in 1658, an horrific and agonising, as well as life-threatening procedure at the time. But Pepys seems to have been of a fairly phlegmatic disposition, even staying in London during the plague, although he arranged for the Navy office staff and his own household to be evacuated to Woolwich. And when the great fire broke out at Billingsgate in 1666 and his maid woke him with the news, he went back to sleep. Later, he took to a boat and watched from the Tower of London as families evacuated their homes with their valuables, none seeming to care to try to fight the fire. And Pepys had himself rowed to Whitehall where he broke the news of the conflagration to the king. The diary closed when Pepys found his sight failing and he realised that he would have to dictate his entries to a clerk, but it seemed that he had no desire for it to die with him. After his death, the diaries were found carefully bound and catalogued in his library, together with a glossary to enable future generations to translate them from his private code. And one other slightly mysterious fact remained. His long-time housekeeper after his wife's death was a certain Mary Skinner, often referred to by his friends as Mrs. Pepys, and he willed her an annuity of £200. But the great philanderer never married Mary Skinner, whether from loyalty to the dead Elizabeth or indifference to public opinion.
4: I can vividly remember driving along the roads of Wiltshire, playing with the tuning button in my little Honda, looking for something to listen to other than pop tunes. I think I mistakenly flicked from FM to Longwave and scanning through came across something familiar and delightful. Irish Voices, Longwave 252, the home of RTE radio to listeners in Britain and beyond since 2002 when RTE had acquired the transmitter site from the commercial station Atlantic, beaming out over 1,200 miles from Summerhill. The sound on my car radio was hissing and dropped in and out as I motored along, but from then on, I regularly tuned in on any commute for this fix of a sound from home. Having long-wave radio in the car became an essential, and I can still remember the look of utter disbelief on the salesman's face when it came to trade in my old car And I gave as my main requirement for a new vehicle that it should have a radio with long wave. No one's ever asked me for that before, mate, he said. I think my fascination was based partly on nostalgia, partly on the fear of missing out. Like tuning the wireless knobs, searching for Radio Luxembourg in my childhood, I was again finding the joy in discovering what I wanted to listen to. And the hiss and crackle all added to the sense of exploration. I think I was also influenced by my mother, who throughout the 70s in Dublin, tuned into Terry Wogan for his morning show, broadcasting from BBC Radio 2, 1500 on the long wave. I was following a family tradition, but in reverse. The fear of missing out involved keeping up with the various goings on in Irish life, which were not always covered in British media. I avidly consumed news of sport, politics, and the rapidly changing face of the country so that I didn't feel completely out of the conversation when I went back to Ireland. There was one other important factor. If, like me, you're not living in one of the main areas in Britain where Irish people settle, you can go weeks without hearing the sounds and distinctive turns of phrase which are unique to the Irish use of the English language. Listening to Longwave 252 reconnected me with that way of talking. I was tickled to hear the late and much-missed Marion Finucane describing cocaine at parties in affluent parts of Dublin being passed around like snuff at a wake. Or someone on Liveline saying, sure squirrels are just rats that went to Trinity College. Or Brendan O'Connor, prefacing a question in his rich cork voice with, listen, come here and tell me now. You just don't get that on British radio. Longwave radio is relatively expensive to sustain. There's an environmental cost too. And these days, many alternative ways to listen. I think most of us understood that the closure of the service was inevitable. It was first announced in 2014, but due to protests from many of the Irish diaspora in Britain, the shutdown was postponed until Friday just gone, when Longwave 252 finally ceased broadcasting. Today, my car radio has DAB. I can link it to my phone and listen online. The programs I want to hear are available as podcasts. I can even scroll down through the TV channels to find all the RTE output available. This is a great advancement, and I'm grateful for the high-tech world of smart speakers and apps. There will, however, always be a bit of me that misses the hissing, fading in and out of the sound, that came from County Meath across 1200 miles with the particular magic that only radio can bring.
5: This cottage is ours, I thought, even though the auctioneer said there was already an offer, a cash buyer, and our house in Wicklow was not yet sold. It sold in three days. All the love we put into it, valued by the young couple who bought it. We often regretted that shedding. Why did we exchange our beautiful renovated cottage for one that needed so much work in County Waterford? What were we thinking? But I was running away from death the death of my father, which brought my death closer. I wanted another adventure. I wanted to renovate, escape to a cottage in the country and have some quiet to write. Even though I had done that already when I moved from Dublin to West Wicklow. Any psychoanalyst could have told me, but I didn't consult one. I uprooted everyone from the sheep-filled fields and the rivers we swam in every summer so we could start again. And who wouldn't fall in love with the land hereabouts? The gold of the fields against the indigo sea and sky. And the accents in the southeast are the voices I grew up with. I was searching for my dad in the fields. You see, there was that moment late at night when I was alone in the empty corridor of Vincent's hospital and he was in the mortuary. Strangely, there was music. Gabrielle singing. And I wasn't really listening until she began to sing out of reach, so far, a love song. And is there any love like the love of a girl for her dad who told her stories and was able to whistle like any bird? All those days together, exploring the barns and woods around Uros and Tremor. Lifted so high, I could look inside a nest and realise how fragile the eggs were, how easily they could be broken out of reach Gabrielle sang and I realised that I would never touch him again and that soon the children would leave and the house in Wicklow would become my empty nest so I ran. When I was eight years old my best friend Gillian and I ran away to our hut in the wood. In secondary school when I couldn't bear being enclosed for another minute I'd spot the door unlocked at the end of the corridor and I'd run through it and away up the fields to the reservoir. This pattern continued and I often ran away, not thinking about what effect that would have on those who were looking for me. In the last few years, I was thinking that I would like to travel and even move to South America or somewhere far away. I was sitting in a cafe listening to a man speaking with my father's accent, but it wasn't my father. And I realised that much as we love and cherish this landscape in the southeast. It was a bit like coming home to find that your parents are no longer there. And how quiet it was in those days of lockdown and how busy the world seems to me now. It takes willpower to be quiet and listen to this grief and sense of exile. What happened over the last few years? That lack of touch, those loved ones who were out of reach. What did that do to us? And what of the people who have had to abandon their homes and their families and travel far away? What of the nights when they try to sleep but cannot? Where are we now? Bowie asked in one of his later songs before he left the earth. Spring asks us to begin. But for a while I need to stop running and retreat into my purple dressing gown. Feel the haw of death and loss on the back of my neck turn around to face that monster and find that it's only my dad whistling like a bird reminding me that the swallows will return there will be new nests eggs hatchings and I'm still here
0: Near the side Wasn't right, I was stupid for a while. Swept away by you, and now I feel like the fool. The Taste of Words I love the woody earthy taste of the word cinnamon. How it brings back breakfast from our childhood kitchen as a spice bubbled up on buttered toast. The words, sidewalk, cookies, candy, mailman, lightning bugs, popsicles, mom, sneakers and jaywalkers, aluminum, vacation and thanksgiving. My first learned language. I love every word written in my mother's letters during my 14th summer, just months before we lost her. I love how she gifted me the word sweetheart and how I knew to title each of my sons with the same blessing. I love that I can be scunnered, foundered, pure Baltic or in Egypt. I love that the word grand can have so many levels. And that a glass, a drink, a bag, a credit card, a car, a house, can all be we. I will, yeah, catch yourself on. Where are the wains? I love how a play on words, puns and jokes crouch like tricksters in my father's soul, can still escape with a hearty laugh. I dread the weakening of his speech and memories. I love the words that formed into family jewels, fancy schmancy, and how sometimes a look between Lawrence and myself is all we need. I do have that trapdoor in my throat to hold back fermented thoughts, but curses escape like demented ferrets at road-wandering drivers are ridiculous moments on TV. I love the words gifted from the Irish, I Hawaii, a store. I love how my grandson can turn a word around in his mouth, examining the texture for full meaning. Space Jam, the legacy. What does legacy mean? No, what does it mean? And now, with the wonder of a newborn grandchild, the glory of words as they will form, giving voice.
6: On this morning's programme, we heard Teddy's Irish Bards by Daniel Mulhall. The Birdman was by Michael Hilliard Mulcahy. The Plague and the Fire of London and the Diary that Described Them for History was by Emer O'Kelly. Goodbye 252 by Paul Hughes. Out of Reach by Lanny O'Hanlon. And The Taste of Words, a poem by Denise Blake. The music today was Carolyn's Concerto, played on harp by Anne Marie Farrell, Caravan of Love by the House Martins, Curtain Tune Upon a Ground from Improvisations on Purcell by L'Arpeggiata, In the Days Before Rock and Roll by Van Morrison with Paul Durkin, and Out of Reach by Gabrielle. Sunday Musselini's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon, and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And if you'd like to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE Radio Player or the programme website and you'll find that at rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. And you can find out more about this or other arts and culture programmes on our website too, rte.ie forward slash culture.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.